morning. First, I apologize. I didn't mean to create a tense moment. Steve, wherever you're at, uh, um, my heart is, I don't want to turn this into an argument at all. Uh, love, love the conversation, love what you're doing. Um, um, and I do want to say the gospel is simple. That doesn't mean theology is simple. Theology can be very hard to understand and can be complicated. That doesn't mean the gospel is complicated. The gospel is a simple message, and it's good news. So two things. Believe the truth about who you are and who God is and surrender yourself to it. That's the gospel. Believe the truth about who you are, who God is, and surrender yourself to it. And it is the most life-changing message that the world has ever seen. I was listening to a podcast by uh, the, the, the wife of the, the um, uh, deceased uh, musician, Keith Green. Melody is her name. And she said this. She said, Actually, this, this was uh, Keith talk, speaking to her early in their, in their marriage. He said, and this was before they were Christians, he said, he said it's, it's strange to me. Every world religion has something to say about Jesus. Every world religion has something to say about Jesus. And I thought, that is interesting. Because Christianity doesn't have much to say about the founders of other world religions. But every world religion is forced to say something about Jesus. Now, maybe I shouldn't say every, but many of them, most of them. Um, I want to give you today one more reason to run into the arms of Jesus as fast as you can. One more reason. Um, if you would, open your Bible to Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> There's a parable here that, and, and I have a problem too today that um, I know the time changed. So in your, in your heads, it's 1230 right now. And, and so I'm thinking through that, like, okay. Um, so I'm going try to try to move fast. Um, but so Luke chapter 15, there's a parable called the prodigal son. Everybody knows this parable. Everybody knows how it, you know, the message, the content. Um, it's, it's, it's very familiar we could all give a paraphrased version of it on demand. But I want to go to the broader context of Luke chapter 15 and um, look at the message that Jesus is trying to give the audience that this is coming to and, and maybe pull some other conclusions from this chapter than come just by looking at the parable of the prodigal son. So if we back up to Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and read, it says, The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This begins a series of parables that Jesus gave, three parables. And I want to look at, 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 at these three parables today. First of all, the audience, Jesus is specifically speaking to the tax, I'm sorry, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. 
if we would reframe that, this language, we could say that he was speaking to the, to the people who were responsible for copying word for word the letters of the Holy Scriptures from one parchment to another. And he was speaking to people who spent their entire lives trying to make application from these words. We can read the scripture our entire lives. But unless the Holy Spirit shows up, we can spend our lives and miss the truth. We can, we can, we can dissect and we can digest, we can cross-reference and cross-examine, and yet somehow we can miss the message of the Bible. We can, becoming, we can become conceited and self-exalted. Why? Because we become blind to our own sinfulness and the need that we have personally for the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. These people came to Jesus and they whined and they fussed. He receives sinners and he eats with them. The Logos, the written word of God, has to become the rhema, the spoken word of God in our lives. Moving to Luke 15, 3, there's a parable of the first of this series of parables. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, he leaves the 99 and goes and finds it. He says, he comes home, he calls together his friends. He says, rejoice with me, I found the sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who, tongue in cheek, need no repentance. Righteous persons who need no repentance. See, Jesus uses here, he, he, he uses irony. Because there are no righteous persons who need no repentance. That's not a category. And if there's anyone in the entire Bible who should know their guilt before God, shouldn't it be the people who spend their lives copying the Scriptures from one parchment to another and trying to understand them to make application? If there's anyone who understands their need of God's forgiveness, shouldn't it be this category? They should have instead been like their colleague Nicodemus who went to Jesus by night and said, what? how do I become born again? This parable, Jesus, Jesus probably seems to pull from uh, Ezekiel 34 where he says, he said, Ezekiel 34, God says to the shepherds of Israel, he said, you're fired. I, I, God, and am going to become the shepherd of Israel. And here's what he says. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. The self-sufficient and the hard-hearted I will destroy, says, says the Lord. In this parable, Jesus is likening himself to the shepherd. And he's contrasting himself against these shepherds of Israel who were not seeking the lost sheep. You know, we tend to think of the lost sheep as people in need of salvation. And, and this application is having, in this parable, is having application to salvation alone. But I wonder, do you think that sheep only ever get lost one time? I don't know how sheep work, and I've never farmed sheep, and I don't ever plan to. But 
I have a feeling that sheep probably tend to get lost more than once. And I wonder, when was the last time that you were a lost sheep? When was the last time that you were a lost sheep? Are we, and do we have danger of, being the righteous who need no repentance? Is that a possible category for us to to, to find ourselves in. I do want to say this category does not exist with God. There is no category in God's eyes where you are a righteous person in need of, of, of no forgiveness. There's not a category of no repentance. Sorry, that's not a category with God. That's a category and an illusion that's created by the enemy of our souls to steal the joy that we have in Christ. That is where that category comes from. It makes us blind to the goodness of God. There is no bad section of town in heaven where the people that need repentance live and all the others live over here on the other side of the tracks. That's not the way heaven is laid out. I have been found by Jesus in my life more times than I can remember. And I'm sure that you can relate to that. And, and often it's happened to me in some very unexpected ways. And this year I feel like has been full of those uh, for me personally. And I am so grateful. I am so grateful to God that he is not only willing to go after the lost sheep, but, but he, he, he seems like he comes after the righteous who need no repentance too. And I am so grateful for that. Like... like uh, I believe Steve said in his prayer this morning, we take one step towards God, he takes five towards us. But sometimes he's taken five towards us before we've even taken one. And I am so profoundly grateful for that. The, the, the second parable in this series is the parable of the lost coin. And he, he says this, he says, there's more joy before the angels of God. This, this, he, the, the, the woman finds the coin, she puts it back in the purse, and, and Jesus says there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I read that and I realized something about myself. I realized that I've always pictured, as I thought about this joy in heaven over a sinner, a sinner repenting, I've always thought about the angels having joy. And God kind of sitting back over here going like, finally another one kind of got his act together. And the angels are having a party. But that's not what the text says. There's joy before the angels of heaven. Who's having the joy? It's the Father. He's having the joy. In fact, the the parable of the prodigal son illustrates this even more. The Father is the source of the celebration. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? That the good news, this simple gospel, we have a God who's coming after us. That is absolutely profound. It's so good. It really is good news. I hope that you've encountered it as good news. We tend, in the parable of the prodigal son, we tend to focus on the prodigal. That's who tends to get 
the attention. Uh, I was speaking with, with somebody um, last week, um, and, and he said, he was kind of telling me his life story, and he said, I was a hellion in my 20s until my wife drug me to church, and, and you know, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. And, and that's what we think of when we think of the prodigal son. We think of these people that have just, just, they were hellions. And God got a hold of them. But I believe that in the parable of the prodigal son, that every one of us is the prodigal. And just like the righteous who need no repentance is not a category, there are no older brothers in the kingdom. We're all prodigals. And we all have to find ourselves there. This, the, the parable of the prodigal son is not the story of one man who went, one son who went completely sideways. It's the story of two lost sons. Two completely lost sons. Two sons who completely lost touch with the love of their father. It's two of them. They're both lost. It has a villain and a hero, but the villain of this story ends up completely different than the way we think it's going to end up when we start reading the story. And the story, this story ends, the story ends with the older brother, this righteous man who needs no repentance, being left outside the house, refusing to come in while his father is begging him to. That's where the story ends. We never find the older brother coming into the house and, 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 and partaking in the festivities. The older brother disowned the younger brother. He said, this son of yours... The older brother was irritated by how far the younger had, had fallen and devoured your property, he says, among prostitutes. And I wonder, who are you? As you read this story, do you, are you the older brother or are you the prodigal? For me personally, I constantly have to be on my guard because I find that this spirit of the older brother comes up in some very subtle ways, unexpected ways. And I, these, these thoughts and these, these you know, this, some, some subtle pride starts to grip me and I, th- and I start comparing myself against somebody else. And I start thinking, oh, I got this. It's so subtle and it happens so easily. But I know that heaven has no category of older brothers who need no repentance. This man, this older brother, was disgusted by his father's joy over his brother. The reason? Because he was comparing himself, not to his father, but he compared himself to his brother. I'm not like other people. Thank God I'm not like my younger brother. That's, that was, his, his, that was his, his frame of reference. His frame of reference was his younger brother. He needed to compare himself against the father. The real injustice here was against his father. The younger brother said, the only thing of value you offer me is your money. I hate your morality. I hate your ethics. I hate your religion. And I hate this stupid farm. He said, just give me my part and I'll be gone. And yet, this dad, this father waited and he prayed. Maybe they sat down at their their noon meal and and the father prayed, oh, God, be with my son. Bring him back home again. And the older brother's just disgusted. Let it go, Dad. He's dead to you. 
be, be, get over it. As believers in Christ, every single one of us are prodigals. We are all prodigals. And Jesus is our older brother. As believers in Christ, Jesus is our older brother. And yet when we come to our father, Jesus says, ah, I don't know if I want to share my inheritance with this man again. He freely shares his inheritance, Ephesians says, with us. We, when we look around, when I look, when I look around, when you look around, we can compare ourselves with each other and, and, and we, can, we can feel really good about ourselves. But when we honestly look at Scripture, a little bit going back to our Bible study this morning, when we honestly look at Scripture and we honestly look into our hearts and we assess what comes out of our hearts, things don't look quite so good. One of the great Christian contributions to the world has been the idea of, 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 of depravity, has been the idea of the inherent sinfulness of the human heart. Um, you know, even our founding fathers recognized that, 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 that even the best people sometimes have blind spots and they have their sin inside their heart. So we find many checks and balances put in place by the founding fathers even of this country. Um, uh, we, Romans three nineteen. some of this has actually was said this morning, but whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth can be stopped and the whole world can be held accountable to God. I know that nothing, dwells in, nothing good dwells inside of me. That is in my flesh. I have a desire to do what's right and not the ability to carry it out, Paul says. Personally, as I have lived, I have found even my best works stained by the flesh. Even my best works, even, even sometimes my, my, you know, I want to help somebody. Ooh, do I, do I want to help them or do I just want to be, look like, do I just want to look like a caring person? Am I generous or do I just enjoy the feeling I get when I give? You know, there's all of these questions where sometimes I'm unsure. My God, is anything that I offer to you unstained by the brokenness of my flesh? And I don't know, but I pray that he could receive what I have to offer as purified by Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says that the true Christian's nostrils is the, the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to his inner cesspool. How does that land with you? Ooh. It goes, kind of goes against the grain a little bit, doesn't it? The true Christian's nostril should be constantly, att- continually attentive to the inner cesspool. By external standards, I have lived a good life. But I have no confidence in the way that I've lived because I know what I've seen in my heart. I know the attitudes that I've seen. I know the thoughts that have come through my mind. I know sometimes the motivations behind my good actions. I have no confidence because I'm convinced that the capacity 
for the most depraved of actions lies right within me. And just like an acorn possesses everything that it needs to grow into a giant oak tree, so everything needed to become the most depraved of human individuals lies within my own heart. I am desperately in need of Jesus Christ. There are many, many frameworks for how to become a good person. Self-improvement is one of the highest selling categories of books in the world today. Self-improvement. The gospel is very, very different than self-improvement. One starts with the idea that the self, what's here, is good. We just need to improve on it. We need to fix the little things that kind of got broken along the way, tweak it, improve it, and you'll be good. The other one starts with the idea that the self is hopelessly lost and in need of redemption. And indeed, it runs contrary to God and it must be destroyed. Uh, I recently am reading a book by a man, uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Gantz is his name. He's a uh, a uh, licensed psychologist and professor and, I don't know, a bunch of different things. But uh, fascinating guy. He started his, he, he, he began practicing psychology as an unbeliever. And um, he, he, became, he became a Christian um, by being confronted with the gospel in various ways. And um, as simultaneous to him becoming a Christian, he took a job as the head of, of psychology at a hospital. And there was a man there, so he's a new Christian, trying to sort out, what, you know, how do I bring my faith into my job? And, and there's a man there who's been there for years. He's broken in so many ways. He won't utter more than a few words. And this man comes in and talk, sits down and talks to uh, Dr. Gantz, and he says, he, in their conversation, he says, I am God. And Dr. Gantz says, nope, no, actually you're not. Because here's what the Bible says. And the man was so taken aback by this. He began to talk incessantly, uh, and as I recall, um, he, he didn't come to, to faith in Christ in that moment, but maybe a week or so later, Dr. Gantz was eating lunch, and he comes to him, and he says, uh, uh, I, I want to follow Jesus. And Dr. Gantz was like, uh, I can't actually do that, because that's not legal, and I'm going to get fired. And anyway, he leads the man to Christ, and he gets fired. But, um, but, but the interesting thing was, is here's a man who, for years has been unable to utter more than one word at a time. He, he's broken. I mean, m- most of the profession has given up on this man. Dr. Gantz confronts him with the truth of Scripture, his own sinfulness. And it completely changes. It brings healing beyond anything, any tool that psychology had to offer. It brought healing into this man's heart. There's something so profound about recognizing your inner cesspool. The the truth can never stop there. It has to go on to understand the truth about what Christ has done for us. But we have to start with why grace is amazing to begin with. Um, This knowledge, this knowledge of who I am without Christ, forces me to cast myself at the foot of the cross for continuous renewal and forgiveness and reminders of who I am both in Christ and without him. And how, how long 
has it been since you took a look at your inner cesspool? Are you willing to acknowledge its existence? Or is that too uncomfortable that you need to run from it? You see, we love, in Christian circles, we love to talk and we love to shake our heads. Oh, man, did you hear about that man? Poof. How could she do that? Well, be, be praying for them. We, we love that. But if we could let the primary cause of our head wagging, being that look at our inner, own inner cesspool, it will work a humility and a gentleness into the depths of our soul that will enable us, enable us to be competent ministers of a new covenant. And it's a new covenant that has a God who rejoices with repentance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, and this is a long quote, and I'm going to break it down a little bit, but he says, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their, their fellowship and service, may still be left in loneliness. So maybe that Christians can go to church all the time and still be lonely. Point number one. Everybody get it? You get that? Okay. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. Okay? That's an interesting comment. The pious fellowship. You guys know what pious fellowship is? It's the, you know, it's, it's the conversations that can never quite get past praise the Lord and God bless you, brother. It's the, that's the pious fellowship. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin both from himself and from his fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone, living in our sin, living in our lies, and with our hypocrisy. The fact is, we are sinners. How many prodigal sons have made their way back home, expecting to find the father, but only found the older brother instead? I recently watched a group of guys who had experienced a powerful move of God. And walked out of that, and I watched them kick a guy to the curb. Because, for various reasons. He was a vulnerable guy, but man, they had the best, most spiritual sounding reasons to do it I've ever heard. And I looked at that. And I was sad, but I'm not surprised. Why? Because there's an inner cesspool in all of us. The truth is that we are sinners. Some of us need to walk into the storerooms of our hearts and find the cesspool jar. Pull it down off the shelf. Maybe turn the lid, open the lid. Just take a whiff. 
Just be reminded what it smells like in there. But there may be others who need to quit allowing the accuser to speak condemnation over you because of that cesspool. That maybe you need to feel the Father's embrace. And you need to remember that actually he took his own robe and he clothed you with it. And I I think there are times in our lives for both of those. I, I truly believe that. We don't get to marinate in our sinfulness. We don't need to marinate in our sinfulness. We need to marinate in the tremendous goodness of our Father. We never want to get comfortable with our sinfulness. It's not that we can never offer accountability. Some of the, some of the ways I've heard some people talk about, well, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. So, you know, what, what, what authority do you have to say anything? And that's not what I'm saying. We never get comfortable with our sinfulness. We, it's not that we can never offer accountability or confrontation for sin. But when we do that, we are filled with a gentleness and a humility, knowing, as, as I believe Galatians says, that con- uh, considering ourselves as well as we restore the brother that's fallen. Because I know that inside me, the very same acorn can take root. I haven't looked at porn personally for probably 15 or 20 years. But that fact, if I'm sitting with somebody who has a porn addiction, everything in my heart that is required for a porn addiction is right here. Listen, my eyes can lust just as much as anybody else's. Just because I don't find myself stuck in the same struggle that my brother has, doesn't make me better. I know what's in my cesspool. I know what swims there. I know what I'm capable of. I am no better than anyone else. And I truly believe that from my heart. We have to address the beam that is in our own eye before we can see clearly to get the splinter out of our brother's eye. There are no righteous in the kingdom of heaven There are no righteous who need no repentance. We are all standing here in need of the forgiveness of Christ. There's no older brothers who've never disobeyed a command. These are non-existent categories in heaven. And they're offered to you only as baked by the one who intends to destroy your joy and make distant the amazingness of grace and drive you from the cross and use you to do the same for others. That's where those categories come from. If you would stand for me. I'm going to dismiss this. Um, But as I do that, If you have felt the Holy Spirit knocking at the door of your heart, bringing conviction in any area, I just want to invite you. We're going to dismiss, but you can come right here and pray. Don't leave if God is speaking something to you today. Just acknowledge it. Um, We have such a good Father. 
And it's a fa- he is a father who rejoices in repentance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer further says, he says this, They all stood there beneath the cross. The enemies and the believers. The doubters and the cowards. The revilers and the devoted followers. But his prayer in that hour, Father forgive them, was for all of them. For all of humanity. His prayer was for us. Forgive them. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Why? It's because I leave my good works behind. And I also leave the evil behind. And we all find ourselves at the same place at the foot of the cross. We need the forgiveness of a father who freely offers it. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? I know I covered a lot of ground, but I want to say this. Uh, If the gospel, I heard this on a podcast, I think, as well. The gospel is not too good to be true. It's not good, and it's not true. If it's not too good to be true, it's not good, and it's not true. And that's that's a... um, All right, um, yeah, let me, I'm, I'm going to pray and um, dismiss this. Again, if the Holy Spirit has spoken anything to you today, I have been so moved this year by rec- just recognizing my need of who I am. I've been so moved in that. And um, so, Father, please... Bring truth into our hearts. We run to you this morning. We run to you, recognizing that we need you. We leave our good works behind. And we come to you in our brokenness and our tremendous need of a Savior. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.